Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This roadmap would make really good sense, potentially, as part of an overarching strategy. If there was one. If there was one, <laughs> which included carbon pricing yeah. and inclu- and was tied to a clear long-term goal. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, you're on Australian Politics Live, and you're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia. And this week, it's been a big week for energy policy. Uh, there's been many developments on different fronts. So I thought this week... I would have a conversation with one of my favourite people in the world, Adam Morton. Say hello, Adam. Hello, Adam. Hello, Murph. (laughs) Adam, uh, regular readers of The Guardian will know, of course, is our environment editor. He's based in Tasmania and we are having uh, one of those slightly strange remote conversations with one another that will be brought together seamlessly by our executive producer, Miles Martignoni. Shout out to Miles as well. Now, let's belt on with this conversation, Adam. I reckon, uh, given the week, uh, we should start with the Four Corners program uh, that went to air on Monday night. For decades, climate policy has been a battleground here in Australia. Tonight on Four Corners, some of the key players in this drama, the bureaucrats, the scientific advisers, and the politicians speak out about what has been perhaps the greatest policy failure of our generation. What climate policy? I mean, it's basically, it's a mess. Um, It's incoherent and has been for, uh, for a decade. That show basically was a bunch of really senior public servants who had been critical in one way or another during the lost decade of carbon you know, well, during the carbon wars, they all reflected very frankly on that program about their post-traumatic stress, call it that, uh, about basically being, you know, being put through the ringer uh, for a policy process that ended in disaster. What did you think about the show, Adam? Look, I mean, I, the first thing we should probably say about it is for anyone who lived through that period, 2007 to 2010 and, and the years afterward, is it? It was pretty traumatic to go back through it, right? We're watching something that Mm. was a rolling disaster and a rolling disaster that we're pretty familiar with. Um, We, you know, we've talked a lot about um, uh, you and I and privately and in our work and a lot of discussion (laughs) in media about the disaster of climate policy over more than a decade in Australia. I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest uh, with. 
with you and with everyone listening, uh, when I saw the clips for it, uh, I honestly felt so anxious about it uh, that I couldn't watch it. Yeah, really. I actually couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't actually watch it. The so, show. So an- uh, anxious about what I had to, exactly? What, uh, what? It, reliving that? Yeah, just reliving that. Uh, because, you know, Adam and I have been involved in reporting on this issue for quite a long period of time. It's inter- it's incredibly frustrating that we keep going through these cycles of failure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was, I was, I felt tired. I felt like I couldn't actually sit there and endure that conversation. So, I didn't watch it, uh, the, but, <laughs> but I, I got the script, uh, of the show and I read it. Uh, and so I'm obviously familiar with what everybody said, but so I'm just validating your own quite visceral reaction. I, I was obviously worse than you. You could watch it. I felt I couldn't watch it at all. Look, I'm, I don't think you're alone. I was speaking to um, uh, someone who has been intimately involved in these debates for since before that time who turned it on and to see what it was about and had to turn it off within five minutes because I just I, I can't relive this again. Um, I found part of my I, I thought the interviews were really interesting. It's really well done. And Four Corners is a gift, right? They um and they do some really interesting Absolutely. work in this space and we're so lucky to have it. I guess my mind is often more geared to where are we going to go from here? How do we find solutions on this subject? Yeah. yeah. Well and and that Anyway, let's, that pushes us through into the next bit of the conversation yeah. that we want to have together. And that's uh, – so a couple of things happened. I'll just sort of set up the next couple of points that we want to work through this week. The first uh, was we got uh, the, the sort of first component of the the government's technology roadmap. Um, the technology roadmap is uh, basically the, the government's approach – to setting medium and long-term emissions reduction strategies. Now, the if you if you don't follow this debate as intimately as Adam and and, and I do, uh, basically the dynamic of this is the government's now under a lot of pressure from business and other stakeholders to adopt a net zero emissions reduction policy by 2050. The government does not want to lock into that target, but it also doesn't want to be seen to be doing nothing. So the technology roadmap is a substitute in a way for uh, locking in on the target. It's more complex than that, but anyway, Adam and I will work through it. I'm just making sure everyone understands what the, the bits, the components are. So the tech roadmap discussion paper happened. And uh, then we had a whole other discussion about gas, which is sort of related to energy policy. Now we're going to just work through these two things and try and uh, explain to each other and to you what they mean. So Adam, what did you think of the tech roadmap? Uh, look, I uh, I guess it's, as, it's fine as far as it goes. Uh, I'll concede I found it Underwhelming. I mean, we should say that this is a discussion paper, right? Initially, that's really what it yeah, is, and exactly. And to some yeah. extent, it's a laundry list of here are the some technologies. Do you know these technologies exist? <laughs> should we do more of them? Hey, should we not? Have you heard yeah. of gas? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and, and it mm. and it runs out. A lot of the technologies that we hear about and talk about, um, it acknowledges that. Um, 
renewable energy, uh, solar and wind is and is expected to be the cheapest form of energy generation. It acknowledges that uh, and talks about its central role in the future. Uh, it also talks about uh, carbon capture and storage, which uh, is a technology <laughs> which which is a technology that we've been talking about for a couple of decades. And and while it is used mm. in in a few places, has not come on and has not come at all in electricity generation. And it talks mm. about things like nuclear power, which again Australia has gone around in circles on for a long time. Um, and and there are developments in small scale nuclear reactors that potentially change that conversation, but we haven't really progressed. And I, I, I think there are very few people in the country who really see that, even just at a political level, before we get to the energy and science of it, is a likely step forward. So, I mean, i, I got to admit, I'm not sure yet, and it's early days, where the tech roadmap takes us. But what it does uh, clearly set up, I mean, it tells us a couple of things. It tells us that the government either wants to or feels it needs to and be seen to, as you said, be taking action in these areas. And we're going to get further commitments on on this as the year rolls out. Um, it also tells us that it is not persuaded uh, that, as we've been told by many people, and there's been many assessments to this effect, that solar and wind backed by storage is the answer and mm. the cheapest option and therefore where we should be investing because it is still looking over its shoulder going, well, we maybe we should be encouraging other technologies. Now, in principle, that's not a bad idea. Of course, we should try all options we can to reduce emissions. Um, but given the government's overwhelming emphasis on gas, which we'll come back to, which is a fossil fuel, mm. um, it's a little bit, uh, it's easy to assume its intent is not just to push clean solutions or clean new solutions. I don't know. What did you make of it? Well, well there's. I think it's uh, – I mean, that's a very good summary. Um, I think uh, I said in a column through the week, it's sort of like it, it, it posits a, 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 there's an – we're standing at a point in the energy debate in Australia where we've got option A and we've got option B. Um, and option A is uh, we, we push forward with a genuine strategy to drive – decarbonisation and a transition in Australia to low emissions energy. Like we can do that. We can absolutely do that. We have got all the brain power, the resources in order to execute that transition. Plenty of smart people in the business community thinks that's exactly the transition we need to be rolling out right now. Mm-hmm. And we could, in fact, use the economic bounce back from the COVID crisis that we're still enduring in order to lock in the genuine trans, tra, uh, transition, right? That's option A. Option B, and it looks like the government is leaning more to option B, sadly, than option A, is basically we lock in fossil fuels for another couple of decades. Right. Um, you know, we, we, we roll out major gas infrastructure, and we'll come to gas in a tick, but we, we roll out infrastructure that basically... Uh, you know, on the basis that gas has half the emissions of coal or however the government wants to dress it up, but that but that gas becomes coal 2.0 rather than gas becoming a transitional fuel that firms renewables, right? So it's sort of like we've got option A, we've got option B. Now, sort of on the upside, um, uh, the government is clearly 
trying to pivot in this process away from coal, right? Coal still exists absolutely in this roadmap and CCS is the obvious way it continues to exist. But there's less, there's less coal in this roadmap than perhaps might have been expected even 12 months ago. But, the, but you know, rather than saying hooray, Henry, there's a bit less coal in the roadmap, we've got to ask ourselves, well, well what's the substitute? And the substitute right. in the roadmap is not, as you've said, the the way forward where where renewables are the predominant energy source, firmed by gas or firmed by pumped hydro or batteries or whatever else, but where gas is a really integral integral part of of powering the nation through you know industrially, households, etc. So. You know, I think that's how I see it. Um, On that point, I I think that this roadmap would make really good sense, potentially, as part of an overarching strategy, which included... If there was one. If there was one, (laughs) which included carbon pricing and and was tied to a clear long-term goal and emissions trajectory to reduce emissions. Of course, we should be developing Mm. technology and seeing what the possibilities are. And we should be doing serious work to to look at that and governments and hopefully listening to experts need to make, you know, tough calls and about which technologies we should back. And so all of those things make sense. But we are talking about this in the absence of the government having a target of reducing Australian emissions to net zero by 2050 which is Mm. um, based on what scientists tell us that is needed to deliver the goals of the Paris Agreement, what we should be aiming for, right? So so in the absence of that, it's... It's well, yeah, we're going to have lower emissions, uh, and we've acknowledged, and, and obviously, the big part of the public discussion this week has been, oh, the government's not talking about coal anymore; they're talking about gas. Like this is some um, monumental mm, yeah. shift. Well, yes, that Yay! is noteworthy. Exactly, that is noteworthy. Yay! That is definitely worth <laughs> acknowledging. But it, it, it kind of, you know, it's it's such a short-term conversation because the whole conversation is still devoid of what is that long-term goal. Yeah, and if the long-term exactly, goal exactly. is to remove emissions from the economy, which the government doesn't say it explicitly, but it does seem to be still their belief that eventually that will happen. Um, yeah. Why are we putting emphasis on a energy source that actually puts emissions into the atmosphere? No, exactly. That's the point. There yeah. are there are plenty of sources of you know there are plenty of sources that put no emissions into right. the atmosphere. Well, sorry, no. We should acknowledge embedded emissions, obviously, of in course. the creation of solar panels and and you know obviously there are some emissions, but you know there's sort of next to no emissions or half the emissions of coal, and you know wow you know sort of like you know sound the drum do the you know do it's like do the you know do the happy dance I mean. <laughs> You know, please. Well, um, so, well, but there is just while I think of it, Adam. Like on on your point, right? Which is like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how weird we have this strategy devoid of goals and and outcomes, right? We do like here's our strategy, but we won't adopt the targets and and the mechanisms that would give effect to our strategy. But the government's whole sort of presentation of this is well. We can't. We can't have a target without a plan. So it's sort of. It, it is kind of this. 
this is why we get traumatized, everyone listening, I suppose. Like, let me just be frank and uh, like as frank as I can possibly be. This is why we've got post traumatic stress because we have these ridiculous conversations where, you know, sort of false binaries are invoked in order to uh, sort of as blockages to logic, right? Like, we can't, we can't have a target in the absence of a plan. Well, perhaps the target is part of the plan. It's like these things don't actually set apart from one another in the real world of logic. Uh, these things are only painted as binaries in the insane wor- world of climate and energy policy in Australia. Right. And plenty of smart yeah? people will tell you that if you it's you got to think about it the other way around. Set the target, set a framework, and then you build a plan to meet the end goal. Because what is a plan without yes. an end goal? At the moment we talk exactly. about what at the moment we talk it is about the plan. Right. And at the moment we talk sorry, the government talks about an energy transition. <laughs> there is no discussion about what that transition is to. Then there is kind of a nod occasionally that yes, well obviously Paris means, you know, we're gonna be having you know, whisper out of the side mm, of your mouth, maybe something. zero emissions yeah. one day, not, not too soon. Like maybe something. Yeah, exactly. But it's Don't not, worry. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen too soon. But the policies oh are not God. are not geared toward that. And um, the extraordinary emphasis on gas, which I know we're going to talk more about, um, isn't just talking about it as a transition fuel. It's talking about building decades-long infrastructure that would last uh, um, well beyond what um, our commitments suggest we should be buying into this sort of stuff for. So, I mean, that's yeah. where, so yeah. when you ask what I think about the tech roadmap, I guess I come back to, well, on its own, um, in the, that context, it doesn't really make any sense. But there is a place where it could make sense. <laughs> if we if we had a different conversation, great. Yeah, we should, let's do this. Yeah. But, but it, um, and look, I, I must admit, uh, I do wonder if we've been through um, Labor's like to say this week, they were saying that the coalition has had 19 energy policies. I have no idea if that's true. I have not gone back and counted them up, but we've certainly had many. And I do wonder if in a yeah. couple of years we'll be going, adding another one to the list and going, oh, yeah, you remember that tech roadmap? That was uh, that was fun <laughs> for five minutes. Now, that may be unfair know, like we- and that's deeply cynical, but that is the world in which we're currently operating. No, 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 exactly. I don't think it is cynical. I've, I've, you know, I've long held the view that you know, we could develop a small export industry in Australia for all of the carbon and energy policies that we've produced <laughs> over the last twenty years. We could, we could export these to the world. You know, it's like we have so many of them, intricately designed policies that we could, you know, sell there to anybody who needed one. But anyway, look, we well, are going to go down the sinkhole. Yeah, gas, Styles. We need to do gas. Okay. We need to do gas. All okay, right. so. Gas. Now we're going to talk about Andrew Liveris and your scoop. So tell everybody what this is about. Uh, okay. Um, so obviously the backdrop to a lot of discussion at the moment is to everything in our lives is the COVID-19 pandemic. And Scott Morrison uh, back in March, I think, appointed uh, Nev Power, a former chief executive of Fortescue Metals Group, to chair what they're calling the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, which I don't know, you might be able to summarise what its job is better than I would, but basically (laughs) is to come up, initially was to help with what was required to get resources moving to deal with the pandemic, and then to come up with recommendations about what the economic recovery might look like, right? And, uh, and, And 
Um, I'm no expert on its um, on the transparency and governance around its arrangements, but I think it's fair to say that it was appears to have been thrown together fairly quickly and is obviously happening outside of government. And there are a bunch of things about how it's operating that haven't really been made clear or have only come to light uh, belatedly. Anyway, they, yeah. they we know they have, though, that they have set up a number of task forces to work on various parts of the economy to come up with suggestions. And one of them is a manufacturing task force to look at what could be done to um, uh, give a great future for Australia's pretty beleaguered manufacturing um, industries. And yeah. uh, and that's headed. And this task force is headed by Andrew Liveris, who is um, a long-time executive of Dow Chemicals, um, uh, also a favourite of uh, Donald Trump, has been appointed to a position in the US to advise Trump. He's on the board of basically the state-owned Saudi oil company. And I uh, received a copy of a draft report by his task force that sets out their vision for what could give Australia a terrific manufacturing future, which is something that I think many people would think would be a great idea. And uh, so about half of it's about, or less than half of it, about the possibilities in manufacturing, but mostly it is about gas and how Australia Mm. should try to find a way to make gas, um, which has become a really expensive energy source in Australia, cheap. And uh, in simple terms, it would involve a huge government backed expansion, uh, underwriting and perhaps direct investment in new gas fields, uh, extraordinary gas pipelines that would run for hundreds of kilometres across the country from the north to the east and maybe from Western Australia to the east. These would cost billions of dollars Mm -hmm. and to introduce potentially tax incentives to help get gas infrastructure built as a priority. government support for companies for drilling and getting gas out of the ground into markets and trying to push, keep prices incredibly low so that we would have um, gas at the heart of the future of our economy for stretching out into the future. And this document uh, does not consider alternatives to gas, does not mention climate change, does not mention the Paris Agreement and Australia's commitments under it, doesn't mention emissions reduction, does mention renewable energy, uh, again, in that kind of, you know, uses the word transition without explaining what the transition is to, uh, but says gas can work hand in hand with renewable energy and uh, and help it. And perhaps if we can get it really cheap, we could just keep building and have more gas power as well as using gas um, in other parts of the economy. So, um, I mean, I guess it, it's obviously not yet, there are a series of recommendations in it, but they're draft recommendations. They haven't yet gone to government. There's no suggestion the government will do any or certainly all of this, but it does line up, obviously, with what Scott Morrison said back at the start of the year when uh, gas is vital, part of the undefined transition, and Angus Taylor, the Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister, has strongly backed the idea of a gas-fired recovery. So... um. For those reasons in particular, it's a pretty interesting document. Well, I thought it was an extremely interesting document. I was, I was, uh, I was very interested to read it. And you're right; uh, we need to do uh, deploy, uh, employ some re- some caveats here. Uh, this is uh, a set of advice 
that's been prepared for a task force advising the government. It's not clear what the government will do right. in relation to these recommendations yet, as you said. So, like, you know, just to be just to be clear about the status of the document. But it does, you know, sort of talking about roadmaps, all, all roads lead to gas nirvana, right? Uh, there, there's a through line in the thinking and the advice that is being given to the government about to how to execute a transition that looks more like an iteration than a transition, right? Yeah. And when we desperately need the transition and when, in fact, as you referenced a second ago, this same government, the one that's contemplating an iteration rather than a transition, same government signed Australia up voluntarily to the Paris Agreement. Same government. This is not a different government that signed up to a bunch of climate commitments that, and, and the, the contemporary government has inherited that and so sort of has to deal with it but isn't really committed to it. Same government signed up to an international process which requires Australia to hit net zero emissions by mid-century. Yeah. Same government. Yep. But the same government, you know, that's out of one side of the mouth, out of the other side of the mouth, is a strategy that looks increasingly completely inconsistent with that. Yeah. So it's how how, you know, they how they they bring these two streams together. Uh, is well, just it's just inexplicable uh, how how you square those two circles. Um, I guess there's more focus now than there has been on on what the COVID Commission Coordination Commission is doing and and the role it's playing with the government because, as you said, it was thrown together very quickly. I remember the day Scott Morrison announced it. It was right in the middle of the. The crisis. It was basically after we'd shut the borders, after you know exports had stalled, people couldn't move things across the country. It was it was right at the peak of the crisis where it was entirely sensible for Scott Morrison to gather a bunch of company directors who are used to dealing with logistics in the economy, bring them in as a, as a kitchen cabinet, and have them advise government about how we can cope in this environment, entirely sensible. And I'm sure these are really eminent people. But the fact of the matter is their role has now evolved into advising governments on policy directions. Um, These people were appointed by the Prime Minister. Their appointments were never advertised. Uh, It's obvious that they've set up the structure and had to retrofit the the governance afterwards. You know, I'm not paranoid about this commission. I think they've got a role to play. And like I say, I think there's some really high-powered people on it. But I think we do need to keep very close watch on what advice is being given to the government and what happens next. Now, I'm I'm hideously conscious of the time, Adam, and there's one more – well, there were a couple more things we wanted to do, but we better stop raving shortly. Um, You mentioned Liveris uh, has – also has roles in the US – advising the Trump administration and so on and so forth. I just want to, without sort of ending on a completely nihilistic note, although we're going to, let's be honest, um, I just want to spend a minute thinking about the global outlook, right? We've had a whole, you know, 25-minute conversation here on the domestic outlook for climate and energy policy. But the fact of the matter is we are very, we are a very small contributor to the world's emissions overall, 
uh, except, of course, we're a major exporter of fossil fuels, something that's always minimised in those discussions. But anyway, look, we're not China or America, basically. We're Australia. But we've got the global process. It's entering a really difficult time, in my view. It was all... That whole Paris process was already staggering under the strain of Trump basically withdrawing countries like us, you know, doing little more than giving lip service to commitments, not actually playing a, a constructive or positive role in in the international process, right? It, it was already in trouble before COVID hit. Now, COVID has hit. Now, every major economy in the world is going to be obsessed with uh, uh stimulating economic growth over the next little bit uh, to restart economies, like all the major economies of the world are going to be in that boat. Um, there, I, I think a, a couple of things, um, the economic climate and also people, people, citizens in countries are going to be much more focused on their material circumstances than they are about thinking about, you know, are we going to have a habitable planet? in a couple of decades' time, right? It's just a really bad time, I think, for international climate negotiations. I think the worst thing in the context of the international climate talks that could possibly happen is the re-election of Donald Trump in November. What do you think? I mean, absolutely agree with that. I think so much hangs on that election not just on climate, but on climate particularly. I guess uh, I mean, clearly, look, look, look at it this way. I mean, there is there's a lot in what you just said, and and I agree with it. I think it's we don't really know what the impact yet on uh, the climate push um, for, by from the COVID pandemic is going to be like everything else. It's been pushed back. Talks have been pushed back. This year was supposed to be a really big year in climate negotiations. Now, mm. people mm. could, with very good reason, be quite cynical about the idea that there is a big year in climate negotiations. The Paris Agreement was a major deal um, in which the world finally came together and had an agreement, but we have not yet seen countries follow through in the way they need to with policies to deliver on that, anything like it. The trend is in that direction, but nothing like enough, right? And then we've yeah. had the second biggest emitter in the world um, say they're pulling out of the agreement and and Donald Trump is blowing up uh, environmental regulations and moves all over the place. Um, yeah. A little note of optimism on what's happening in the US is that there are a number of states that are doing significant things. And um, something we didn't get to on gas before, I think part of what is driving the idea that gas is part of uh, the future here is that gas has played a role in bringing down emissions in the States because mm. it is incredibly cheap mm. there and has replaced coal, yeah. which is a very different situation to Australia. But I think some people think that it could be replicated where most analysts I speak to don't think that's the case for reasons we won't go into now. But so the, the US is not unsalvageable and should Joe Biden win in November, uh, he it's not clear exactly what he would do, but he is a strong supporter of uh, global action on climate change, getting back into the Paris Agreement, of course, um, and has appointed um, really quite ambitious people to advise him on this. Uh, John Kerry and 
AOC, who is the mm. uh, um, poster child for uh, poster child for climate movement in the states. So there is reason there <laughs> for um, some optimism. Should uh, he win? And obviously, that's a really open question. Anyone who makes predictions about U.S. politics these days is um, well, good luck to them. I'd say. Um, I think yes. I think what's happening, but what's happening in the rest of the world is Europe is really quite ambitious. Europe still is one of the big emitters, uh, if you take the take it as a whole. And I'll still, even though they won't like it, include Britain in that at this stage. They tend to work together. Yes. They are making significant steps. There is a huge push there for a green recovery. It's not a one way, yep. of course. There are stories about fossil fuels being backed, but um, uh, there's a significant movement there. Um, the US is either a disaster or a moment for optimism and a Biden win could inject optimism into a new UN climate, the next climate talks, which are going to be in Glasgow sometime next year. And then, of course, there's China, which is the world's biggest emitter, which, as on everything, is a really complicated story, really quite opaque, what is happening there. There had been uh, some optimism. I mean, it's building renewable energy on and nuclear energy on vast scales, just as it also is still investing in coal. There is that not that long ago had been optimism that it might be taking significant steps forward. Um, it has reverted a little bit um, to making life easier for coal in the last little while, which is is uh, of concern. And I think it's certainly very hard to see that they would push hard in Beijing without the rest of the world pushing on them, which of course mm. comes back to the US. In terms of what happens out of the, the um, economic um, hit of the pandemic, I mean, it could be disastrous, right? Uh, after the global financial crisis, which was is going to be dwarfed by what's happening now, we saw, yeah. um, as we came out of that, the biggest spike in global emissions in history the next year. Yeah. Uh, the push right now is, can we have a green recovery that doesn't just um, revert to the status quo and supercharge it as we try and stimulate economies? Um, I think that there's reason to think that in parts of the world there may be more success than that this time because clean energy is cheaper and people get get the need to act more than they did and the Paris Agreement is there and everyone is committed to that in some to some extent. But um, and I'm trying to be optimistic here, as you can probably tell. But, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, but, I'm, I'm, I'm but, totally staggered so, by this. But that doesn't. But you know, <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm, I, I'm so delighted I'm, by it. Um, I, I think there is an opportunity, is how I'd put it. And then if Trump wins, uh, the D, the what that does to any sense of momentum and the demotivating impact of that, I think, will be profound. And um, no, 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 finish, and I think on, that's finish really on the concerning. happy bit. Uh, but if he doesn't, finish on the happy bit, Adam. <laughs> um, so that's my ramble about where things are internationally. I, I, I think there is. Um, not reason for optimism that we're about to get to a point where we actually address this situation as we should, but that we are still headed in the right direction and that we can pull something out here, right? I I think that the economics and the global investor community um, is headed in a direction that will lead to change even where governments aren't helping and more governments are than ever. So there's my there's my note of optimism for you, Murph. I think there's I'm a reason so to be positive. We can get lost a bit in I'm... the Australian and US story. Um, it's not the entire story, is what I would say. 
Yes, and that is absolutely the perfect note to end on. I thought we were going to go full nihilism, but Adam has saved us, for which I'm profoundly grateful. I'm also profoundly grateful to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of the show and who's uh, cutting the program together this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for your patience, because we did have a hiatus uh, at the, in the initial burst of COVID, uh, just because it just seemed impossible, really, to do the show. We are now going to push back and do the show hopefully weekly and certainly as often as we can. So thanks for hanging in there with us. Subscribe, share, tell your friends, all that jazz. We'll be back with you next week. Beautiful. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.